I think that the key to branding is really about authenticity. And if what you project or communicate externally is not true to who you are internally, it really doesn't work. And audiences can smell it 100 miles away if something is inauthentic. And it's important to really figure out what your true brand is and, and understanding how a brand works, whether it's a big brand or your personal brand is critical in today's world because everyone and everything is a brand now. Um, we've all been empowered with media and accessible and cheap media, and we are all projecting and seen as brands in some sort of way. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. My name is Mike Jones, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Mike. Glad to be here with you today. Thanks, Brad. So glad we got a chance to have this guest join us. Now, I have done quite a bit of work with her textbook, which I got through my master's program, and it's on transmedia. So it covers a big topic, which we'll get into a little bit later. But I want to welcome to the show right now, Ann Zeiser. Ann Zeiser is a critically acclaimed documentary, transmedia, and social impact producer and media strategist. Her background as a filmmaker and broadcast journalist, marketing executive, and social advocate uniquely positions her as the architect of successful media-driven productions and social impact campaigns. Anne has stewarded iconic documentary, drama, lifestyle, and children's series, and specials for PBS. She's produced news for CBS, managed consumer brands for national marketing firms, and served in government and on political campaigns, and even executively co-produced an Emmy Award-winning show called Muraling Austin. Integrating all of these perspectives, Anne founded Azure Media, which develops high-profile transmedia projects on air, online, and on the go that fuel social impact in communities, schools, and capitals. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast, Anne. So good to have you. Mike, it's so great to be here with you and Brad. I can't wait to talk about all things transmedia, branding, higher ed, and life in general. I love it. Well, before we jump into the real serious questions, Brad's going to kick us off with some getting to know you questions. Okay. Imagine, Anne, that you're climbing into an elevator and you run into your favorite producer. What is your elevator pitch? Interestingly enough, I might start by asking them a little bit about themselves rather than go right into a pitch. I, If I were with somebody that I really was excited to be with, I might use those 30 seconds to ask them a question about themselves or to tell them what I liked about their work. If it was a long elevator ride stories and I felt a, a need to pitch a little bit about myself professionally, I would say a couple of things. And one would be about who I am. I'm a media maker who operates at the nexus of storytelling, marketing, and social change. And if I would say something about what I do, I would say I develop media projects mostly anchored by documentary films that are designed to fuel social impact. If you found yourself in that circumstance, What's the likelihood that the producer in question would even want to talk to you? And I don't mean that in a negative way, but just like, 
I'm being bombarded all the time by people who want me to do stuff. That's probably the reason why I wouldn't come out of the gate talking about myself. I'd say that the likelihood that anybody in their personal space wants to be pitched is very low. (laughs) It's just human nature. I think the best way to get something across to somebody is to find yourself, especially in a circumscribed environment of an elevator with X number of seconds, probably not the place that I would do my elevator pitch, even though I was on the elevator. I would much prefer to be in an environment that was a bit more natural and had some space around it. And I'm not one to pitch myself out of the gate. I'm one to make a connection with somebody first and see whether it feels genuine and not too intrusive. And in some ways that makes you more memorable. So if you follow up, there might be the better possibility that they're going to remember who you are. Well, you're the person who was in the elevator with me. Yes. And we talked about something really kitschy and obscure that we ended up having in common. Yes. Good. Spoken as a true media professional producer. Thank you, Anne. I appreciate that. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Here we go then. When you're alone for a long drive with some of that space, what type of audio is playing to accompany your drive time? Or do you prefer silence? If I'm on a long drive, it's going to be music. I'm not going to do a lot of hard thinking because it's a real opportunity for me to rest my brain. I'm about storytelling music. I love the singer-songwriters from the 70s, and we're talking James Taylor, Diamond and Garfunkel, Bob Dylan, Carole King, Cat Stevens, Jim Croce, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. That's where I live. Perfect. I think Brad could sit in that car with you. Oh, yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. Brad, where do you want to go? We got, I could put about five hours of tunes. Where would you like to go? <laughs> that would be wonderful. Trip? I'll just take a nap if you don't mind and you can drive. And <laughs> I'll just listen to the tunes. Okay. I'll pretend like I'm sleeping, but I'll be listening. He did just get back from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, I've been to Cleveland many times, but never been. This was the induction ceremony, which was in Brooklyn. And I go every year. Oh, oh it's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Is it just out of personal interest or do you have a connect? I'm interviewing you now. Do you have a connection to anybody who was inducted or anything? No, I just, it's one of the best organized and you get to see. So this year it was Cheryl Crow, Willie Nelson, the Spinners, Rage Against the Machine, just a whole variety of genres and they typically perform. So you get to see some of the greats in a very short span of time. It's amazing. I can't believe Willie Nelson is just getting in now. He is 90 years old, and uh, Dave Matthews is the one who inducted him and okay. reported that he has made 72 albums. Wow. 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 Yeah. But he, he performed along with a couple of other folks and was amazing. So wow. Sounds and, and very endearing as well. Uh-huh. So, Anne, you have a very busy life as a marketing wizard, book author, social impact digital architect. There must be moments in your life where you get tired. How do you recharge yourself? Um, Yeah, tired is a thing. I definitely struggle with it because I'm an A-type personality and I'm a go, go, go. But when I stop, I realize the toll that it takes. So I do have something that I do to recharge. It surprises a lot of people and it's horseback riding. Ah. And I love the smell of a a farm and a stable. I'm actually a country girl at heart. 
And a lot of people don't know that about me. I love the smell. I love the grooming. I love the connection with the horse. I like pushing myself to a new level with my riding. I do take lessons. And I rode as a kid, and then I stopped for 35 years. And then I just, I get such a huge halo effect from hmm. riding sometimes on a if i'm lucky it lasts for a whole day and it makes me feel calm and it makes me feel centered it makes me feel happy so when i can do it i do it very good wow i love that i love that well that kind of leads into the next question in a roundabout way because the last time i went horseback riding i learned that there's a lot of truth behind when a horse smells the stable that they go. <laughs> I could not stop my horse. And it was a comedy act. And that leads uh -huh. right into a quote that I found from you on Emerson's website. And it says, it seems in the social media age, the things that are most shareable are funny. Comedy has a huge amount of potential power in terms of awareness. Now, I already let the cat out of the bag that Brad is now taking some uh, classes with improv comedy, which I think is such a good fit for him. And I'm excited okay. to see the outcomes of it. But what advice would you give him on towing the line between funny and cringy comedy? I'd like to start by saying how much admiration I have for comedians and people who are just funny. I'm actually pretty funny in the moment, but I couldn't tell a joke if my life depended on it, which is to me a whole other skill set. I believe that comedians are the smartest of the smart. And to be truly funny, you have to be ahead of your audience. And you have to reverse engineer what you're going to say so it hits at the right moment and it has huge impact. You have to be pretty sharp to pull all of that off. And I think for comedy to truly work, it needs to have universal appeal. Mm. For instance, I think about Tyler Perry's character, Medea, who he created as a one-time thing and has become an event unto herself. And the reason I think that Medea works is because everybody has an aunt or know somebody like that who is this over the top but completely loving character in their family. And she's relatable. And that's why I think she works. And as to the cringy part of the question, Mike, to me, punching down in comedy is cringy. And for those who don't know what that means, it means being hurtful to someone or to a group with less power or standing. Mm. So I believe that being self-deprecating, showing your vulnerable and human side always works in comedy and in life. Great love answer. That. Love that. That's good. Mike, do we have to get serious now? And. Yes, and. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> My two favorite words, by the way. Transmedia <laughs> covers a lot of marketing ground. When you think of transmedia, what does that entail? There's a lot to it. So I'm going to break this into a few ways of looking at it. I'm going to just start with a definition because it's, it's one of those words. People and these words come and go. I'm going to explain what it means first. What's often interchangeably used or used in addition to transmedia is transmedia storytelling, trans transmedia narratives, multi-platform storytelling. And it's the technique of telling a single story or a story experience across multiple media platforms and formats. Mm. And these can be anything you can think of. I'll just give you a laundry list so people can understand it can be anything. Film, TV, podcasts, games, magazines, books, websites, blogs, social media platforms, CDs, 
experiential exhibits, events, toy, graphics, all of that. They're all fodder for telling your story or creating a, a story universe. The concept is by no means mine. It was introduced by Henry Jenkins while he was at MIT, and he wrote a, a seminal book called Convergence Culture, and it's taken off from there. And it was a term de jour some number of years ago, and now it's really something we're all doing more naturally, and we're all creating content on many media platforms simultaneously, whether it's for a product or sort of curating our own personal brand. I have taken that a step further, which actually turned into, started as uh, with my teaching a class at Emerson College that then translated into writing the book that Mike was referring to, Transmedia Marketing. And I take the concept a step further. And I talk about transmedia marketing, which is a, a part of transmedia. And I posit that in today's world, you should not differentiate between the story and its marketing because mm. your brand or product is all part of a single narrative or brand personality or a story universe or a user experience. So that means that you should integrate the content that both tells your story and promotes your brand or property and distribute it on multiple media platforms simultaneously. Mm. So I recommend that you create all of your content holistically as a single creative impulse. And the benefit of that is you'll find that using multiple media platforms motivates audiences to explore your other platforms. And it also makes sure that your content isn't just randomly distributed across me various media streams, but in fact, it accrues to something of a larger whole that kind of sticks in audiences' minds. And it's part of something bigger and it's part of something strategic. I recommend that people not get too overwhelmed. They pick maybe three media platforms and mm -hmm. know them well, rather than try to be everywhere and be fragmented across too many. I also recommend that you choose one that is dominant because that becomes a go-to place for audiences to say, this is where the main part of the story is happening. And I can know that it's here and depend on it. And the other ones can be secondary and they can also lift different pieces. They could lift character, they could lift production backstory, whatever you decide to do. Again, don't differentiate between the story or the brand you're trying to put out there and its marketing. So create an immersive story world and engaging experiences across all of the content that you put out there. So if it's fictional, you can deliver plot points and story. You can deliver character. You can embellish the story world, like what it looks like, what the weather is there. And you can create audience invitations through that content to engage with more content or to go to the other platforms. And if it's nonfiction, then you really want to talk a lot about the issue that you're talking about. So you may engage with experts on that issue, say it was children's health or something like that, that you're going to engage with others and share and respond and talk. You can also, as I mentioned before, you can include, let's say you're creating media, you can include your production universe and what's going on behind the scenes in the production. There's a lot of ways that you can bring your story universe together on a lot of platforms. And so you've got videos, you've got blogs, you've got your headlines, you've got websites, you've got art, you've got 
infographics, any number of things, audio streams, hashtags mm -hmm. that all can come together. And the idea here is about really about audience. It's about serving a passionate, defined niche audience. Niche is okay by creating and curating thoughtful content. And what happens if you do it well is that you spawn loyal participatory fans and even super fans. And through their engagement, you are turning your audiences into co-producers, co-distributors, and co-promoters. And then you have this sort of circle of a conversation that's going between you and them. And to think about I think the seminal example of transmedia for people to wrap their head around it, I would say, and people use this example a lot because it's the best, and that would be Star Wars. Star Wars is a great example of building sustainable story worlds and characters that carry on and carry on. And it meets both criteria for fictional transmedia. It, it creates a story world that will sustain multiple characters and it creates compelling characters that sustain multiple narratives. So all of Star Wars content, whether it's the new movie poster, the trailer, the Lego toys, obviously the films themselves, the website, everything is an installment in an overall experience. And audiences are completely bought into it. And so just a tiny piece of marketing that will come out, or a little teaser with a new character introduced will blow their minds because they're so invested in that universe. Yeah, I'm definitely a behind the scenes kind of guy. I, I will watch the behind the scenes of a epic film over and over again, more than I'll watch the film because I'm fascinated with the art of it. So I, yeah, it's interesting to see it go across those platforms and to different mm -hmm. audiences in some cases. Yeah. And Mike, I think people don't do enough behind the scenes. I think the appetite for behind the scenes is greater than people realize. John Favreau, he made a little indie film that did called <laughs> Chef that, yeah. you know it, Brad. I love that film. As did I. And I, it was a festival film, and then it did get picked up for distribution. And from the minute he went into production, he did behind the scenes little videos with Jodie Foster. Who was that? Who else was it? Um, trying to remember who the characters he had them all do videos he did behind the scenes he showed his dog and <laughs> he had this really excited he also hashtagged chefs which brought the whole foodie community into it because it was the name of the film right. but it brought all the food oh. people who were posting about food and he had this wonderful two-way conversation <clears throat> with pre-created audiences before the film even came yes. out brilliant Imagine if we could do that in higher ed, right? I think I teach production and pre-production. So a lot of the videos in my course are behind the scenes videos because that's how you learn, seeing somebody mm -hmm. else do it. Here's what it looks like. Now let me pull back and show you where the lights are in this scene. And that's, I think, the core heart of that course. But I think if we could do that in other places too, say the humanities or sociology and those places, is give students the why, the interesting why behind yeah. it.
we're going to go down a rabbit trail that wasn't in our plan there. So let's get back on our brand. So when you build a plan to promote or structure a project and you're doing film projects now, but you've been involved in a lot of different projects. So whether they highlight an individual. And so I did branding for Brad as a part of this transmedia course, and he was a gesture caregiver. And so I was structuring live shows and content that would be put out by Brad around that idea of a jester is close to the king, but likes to have fun and is entertaining, but also <laughs> very much cares. And Brad has a huge heart of caring and that in his work, whether it's his book on hospitality or the other things that he does, first year students, that type of thing is all part of his heart. But that allowed me to then shape the messaging that I was in charge of for him in that time and space. And so it can be done by individual level or for a larger brand, as, as you've done some very large brand branding. Why is it so important? to really understand your brand and then communicate on brand. I think that the key to branding is really about authenticity. And if what you project or communicate externally is not true to who you are internally, it really doesn't work. And audiences can smell it from a, a hundred miles away if something is inauthentic. And it's important to really figure out what your true brand is and, and understanding how a brand works, whether it's a big brand or your personal brand is critical in today's world because everyone and everything is a brand now. Um, we've all been empowered with media and accessible and cheap media. And we are all projecting and seeing as brands in some sort of way. And so branding is important by necessity because there's so much content out there and you really have to cut through the clutter and find a way to stand out with a clear and cohesive message and voice. And when a brand is cohesive and it works, it delivers intuitive understanding, intense power and clarity of message and meaning to your audiences. Mm. And so I think it's important before I talk a little bit more about the ways that you can brand yourself personally is to break down the anatomy of a brand because I have a philosophy on branding and the personas that are built on the foundation of understanding a brand. Right. And the way I look at branding is to use the an iceberg as a visual metaphor for branding. And when the average person thinks about a brand, say a consumer brand, they think about the name and the logo and the tagline and some of the messaging and the visuals or whatever an ad for it that they might see out there, artwork. And, and, if, and the way you might look at that for a personal brand, it might show up as your name, which is in fact your brand. It might be your style, your look. And it might be the elevator speech that you give when you first meet somebody. But all of those examples, whether a product brand or a personal brand, are the external expressions of a brand. And they are what above the waterline of an iceberg. And that is your brand's external positioning. But in fact, most of a brand's heft and meaning is what resides below the waterline. Mm. And a brand is, in fact, a coherent, coherent set of concepts that reside in audiences' minds. It's very hard to pin down what it is, but there are ways to get at it. It's the sum of an entity's image and aspiration. Identity is what the brand stands for. The image is what the brand represents. 
an aspiration is how the brand makes audiences feel. So you also hear terms like value proposition, brand purpose, brand promise, brand persona, brand archetype. All of that I just described is your brand's internal essence or brand essence. It's your brand's internal DNA. It's the core truth of who you are or what that brand is. And it's what you need to understand about yourself or your project or product in order to successfully communicate with your audiences. And for example, if below the waterline, you are thoughtful, intellectual, curious, and probing, but you feel like you need to be more personable and sociable. So you put out like a a valley girl or some sort of more superfluous persona above the (laughs) waterline, it's not going to resonate with audiences. It's going to be a disconnect. Again, it's not authentic. So your internal essence, your true brand, and your external positioning or communication of that brand must think. And you must be supremely honest about what your brand is and who you are. So I'm going to talk about how do you discover, well, we'll go with personal brand for a moment, but I I can switch back and forth to a, a corporate brand just as easily. But how do you find what is your own brand essence? What is it that makes you tick? What is below the waterline? And I use in my book and in my work, archetypes, brand archetypes, which are which is a, sync, a simple, intuitive way to map brand essence and brand personas, which are interchangeable terms for the same thing. It's a value-based method of discovery, ascribing a dominant archetype to your brand. And it's derived from Carl Jung's seven archetypes, where he really talks about characters, seven key characters, which are universal constructs. Again, universal, universality always seems to work. That yeah. constructs that symbolize basic human needs, aspirations, and motivations. And when I get to it, you'll find that they, they're very easy to get wrap your head around. And two authors, Margaret Mark and Carol Pearson, applied this to brand identity in a book called The Hero and the Outlaw. And they identify 12 personas or brand archetypes. And the way to think about them, it's hard without visuals, but imagine that you're mapping them across the X and Y axis with the Y vertical axis mapping stability versus change and the X horizontal axis mapping community and individualism. So the way to visualize it is 12 pieces of a pie of say your Thanksgiving pie. And Each of them is a different persona. And I'm going to just give you examples from the media world to show you how easy they are to imagine. The ruler, the ruler, Universal Studios, the creator, YouTube, the innocent, Hallmark, the sage, BBC, the explorer, PBS, the hero, Indiana Jones, the magician, Disney, the outlaw, Netflix, the jester. Ron Burgundy from Anchorman, The Lover, Lifetime Movies, The Regular Guy, Friends, The Caregiver, Sesame Street. And that's, those are the 12 brands. They're so intuitive that I don't have to explain a lot further to be able to say, oh, I get it. Now, most brands are more than one archetype. But usually you have a dominant one. And you might say, how do I figure out what my brand is. If you are a corporate entity, 
the way that, and I can tell stories ab about it later on, about some experiences I had trying to figure out corporate entities. But if, if you're doing a consumer or a corporate brand, it's all about research one way or the other, whether it's about you as a person or that product. You're looking, at, you're doing interviews of uh, consumers, various stakeholders and constituencies. You ask some interesting questions. You ask about adjectives that describe that brand or person. You look at the press materials, the website, all the communications that come forth from that person, all of the anecdotal experiences that you have with that product or that brand, knowing what they do in their personal life. Hey, like I go horseback riding, like Brad is doing stand-up comedy classes. You begin right. to learn what makes them tick and you document it. And then you start to see words and adjectives and things that start speaking to a, a brand archetype. It's much more complicated than that, but if you are doing it personally, I would recommend that you create a little questionnaire for your friends and family and ask a bunch of questions about yourself. The best question is, give me five adjectives that you think describe me, and you will come up with a list across many people. You will start to see some things, patterns emerging. So. The book, both my book, Transmedia Marketing, and the Mark and Pearson book, The Hero and the Outlaw, go into a much deeper dive wow. how to use these techniques. But I do want to bring it back to a story of a professor who did a kind of a brilliant job with her brand because she was so true to who she was and was really all about authenticity. And given that you're a higher ed audience, I thought this would be a great example for you yeah, to that's hear. That's awesome. Her name is Heather Cox Richardson, and she's a history professor at Boston College. And she's written some books as part of her canon of work. But sometime during the pandemic, she felt a need to document what was happening in the world because she found it to be so astounding and she began a nightly post on her Facebook page. And she wrote about the pandemic. She wrote about politics. She always couched a lot of what she wrote in a historical context because that's exactly who she is. She wrote very plainly, very naturally. And her followers commented and she read the comments and she responded to the comments at the beginning when she could. And she shaped her future posts a lot based on the audience feedback. Literally within weeks, she had 20,000 people reading her Facebook posts. Wow. And so she soon realized she was onto something and she moved her posts to a, a newsletter, a daily newsletter that's hosted on a platform called Substack that actually delivers an email to your email box that morning. And she currently has 2 million subscribers. And the newsletter is called Letters from an American. And she saw that the thread of her posts over time was about the state of democracy. And so she decided to write a book called Democracy Awakening, which was the distillation of her sort of largest takeaways from her posts or many years of posting. And the book just launched in late September of 2023. And it was on the New York Times bestseller list within weeks. And mm -hmm. why did it work? Because two reasons. Her writing was authentic. It was speaking plainly and naturally from her heart. She was writing from below the waterline. 
if you look at her posts, sometimes they get pretty deep into history, but in general, she's really always below the waterline of who she is. And her book is too. And she was honoring and she was listening to her, her audiences and certainly began by having a two-way conversation with them. And she was working on multiple platforms. She was on Facebook and then she was on a newsletter and then she turned it into a book. And even before the book was published, she had two million super fans. So she had engaged a community mm. in her ideas and in her thoughts. And I think I happen to be very interested in her work and I happen to be working on a film on democracy. And so that, this example is very close to my heart right now. I've seen her speak three times in the past month. She speaks in person the way she writes. She is incredibly accessible. And I think it's a great example of how somebody can be true to their brand and bring it out to multiple platforms and reach mm -hmm. audiences. That's a brave example. Incredible. Well, folks, we are so happy to have Anne with us, and we're going to be shutting this down for today and coming back next week with part two. So be sure to tune in. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.